Well, good morning, everybody. I want you to do me a favor. I want you to put your hand in the air if you've ever been to Disney World. Coincidentally, Dylan, obviously, hand in the air. Okay, <laughs> most people. Okay, good. Keep your hand up. Keep your hand up. We're playing a game. All right, keep your hand up if when you've been to Disney World, you went to Epcot and rode the ride Mission Space. Oh, a lot of people. Oh, this is going to be interesting. Okay, now, if you remember, keep your hands up. Hang on. Keep your hands up. Uh, if you remember, if you rode Mission Space, how many of you rode the Orange Line, which is the more intense version where you, like, go around Mars, go to Mars? A handful. Okay. How many of you liked it? Okay, look around the room. These are the people that are insane. You, you liked it. Oh, man, it was the worst. So we went to Disney five, six years ago or so um, with, uh, we went with my wife and her family. And look, it is no secret. I make it known. I get motion sick. All right. It is, I, like, if you, if you put me in a car and give me, a, like, I can't even read a text message, I'll get sick. And so Mission Space, what it is, is it simulates you going to space, which basically means they put you in a box and spin you around a bunch. Not my thing. Not cool. Like, I'll take roller coasters all day long. That's cool. But if you, like, sit me in an office chair and spin me around, I'll be sick for the rest of the day. So what happened is we were at Disney. We're going up. We see Mission Space. We go up to it. And when you go up, you can take either the orange line, which is the more intense version that simulates going to Mars, or the green line, which is the more moderate, more family-friendly version that simulates orbiting the Earth. So I figured, I don't want to go. Other people do. Compromise. Green line. I'll still get sick, but whatever. So what happened is we go up, and that, I guess that was just in my mind. People weren't on the same page as me. And Brittany's brother-in-laws, John and Jerry, go running up Orange Line, leaving me in the dust. And I'm like, are you kidding? Like, I can't do that. And so I had to make a decision of I either got to go orange, get sick, get sick with people I know, or go green, still get sick with people I don't know. So I was like, all right, well, I'll just go the Orange Line. I go with them. They strap us in. And from the first moment that the thing moves, I'm just regretting every decision in my life that has led to this point. Like, it is the worst. I don't understand how anybody likes it. What happens is they, they strap you in, and there's a little TV in front of you, and they say, just focus on the screen, and you won't get sick. If you close your eyes, if you start looking around, that's when you get motion sickness. But if you just focus on the screen, you won't get sick. Let me tell you, if you ever want to ride in the future, they lie in. I, like, I don't even think I blinked. I was just like staring at the screen and I got so sick. I think if I remember right, you have to do like different things as you're in your chair, like to avoid asteroids and to, do, to like launch. I'm letting my whole crew down. I'm just pinned back in my chair, just ready for this thing to be over. It was awful. In fact, I have a picture of what the little like cockpit thing looks like. So this is what it looks like if you've never ridden it before. So you're in pretty close quarters with the three people that you're with. All right, so I'm not trying to be gross. But look, if I throw up on this thing, they're spinning us around. It's not just affecting me, all right? I'm ruining everybody's vacation. And so I'm sitting here just pinned to the back, waiting for this thing to be done. And finally, it comes to an end. Uh, it slows down. We get off. I'm like, I'm like trying to break the restraints off of myself. But they finally let us off. We go. We, we, I stumble out of, the, out of the building, find the nearest bench, and just fall on it. And keep in mind, this is like Florida summer, a black metal bench. So I just lay down and cook. I'm just, I'm done. I'm like, people, you guys just go on without me. Leave me here. I live here now. And I was done for the rest of the day. But I don't understand how anybody likes it. And, and the thing is, that was just like a simulation. Like, I, mean, I can't imagine what actually going to space would be like. In fact, if, if NASA came and told me that we want to send you to space, we want you to go to Mars, to be the first man on Mars, and all you have to do is all expense paid trip, Epcot, eat all the food, have a great time, but you got to ride mission space. Nah. Like, that is just not for me. Uh, space travel is not my lot in life, and I understand that. But the worst thing about mission space is there is no payoff. 
Like you ride it, at least if you don't like roller coasters, it's fast, you get the adrenaline pumping. Even if you're afraid of heights, if it's a high one, maybe you get to see long distances and it looks cool. There's some redeeming factors even if you don't like it. Mission space, no redeeming factors. They put you in a box, spin you around and say, look at a TV. It's awful. So I imagine going to space, going actual space travel would be a lot worse. I can't imagine what they actually go through. In fact, I wanna play a little trivia game with everyone today, all right? If you know me, I love trivia. So we're gonna play a little NASA trivia. So Apollo 11, the first spaceship to go and put a man on the moon, the first mission to put a man on the moon, who was the first man to walk on the moon? Yell it out to me, somebody. Oh, good job. All right, first man on the moon, one small step for man, that whole deal. That whole deal. Now who was the second guy after him? Good job. Now this will go one of two ways. Hopefully this doesn't backfire on me. So Apollo 11, Neil, Buzz, who was the third guy? Close. <laughs> uh, who knows, right? His name was Michael Collins. Michael Collins. No one's ever heard of him, right? So what Apollo 11 was, is it was, the, it was a three-man mission. They go, they go, they, they orbit the moon, they get in the orbit, and then Neil and Buzz were the ones to take the lunar lander down to the moon, get out, hippity-hop around, do their thing. And Michael Collins' job was to stay in orbit and wait for them. Can you imagine what a ripoff that would be? Like, you got to go through all this stuff, all this training, all this getting sick. I'm sure he was good at it, but whatever. And at the end of the day, you don't even get to go to the moon. I got to imagine, especially being an astronaut at that time, going to the moon has got to be like his life's goal. Like, that's what the goal was at that time. And imagine he finally gets the call that, Michael, you're going to be on Apollo 11. You're going to be going a part of the mission that puts the first man on the moon. And he had to be through the roof. Like, you got to be kidding me. This is what I've been working my whole life for. I bet he's calling mom and dad, like, you boy's doing it. We're going to the moon. We're doing it. And then they have the planning mission, I imagine, where they sit down. They're like, okay, this is how it's going to work. You guys are going to go up there. Uh, Neil, Buzz, you guys are going to go down to the moon. Michael, stay back. What? Stay back? Like, I'm going all that way. What do you mean stay back? Like, well, someone has to stay in orbit. You got to be there for them to pick them up. Like, what a ripoff. Are you kidding me? I get, to, I get to go, I get to be, like, I can almost, like, why not just when they come back, just let me jump in and go down by myself. I'll be the third one, just let me go. But no, you had to stay back. Can you imagine this thing you've worked your whole life for, being so close to it, but so far away? I imagine Michael, as they were actually on the moon, and he's orbiting the moon, I imagine he was just fuming, like, just sitting there, just, just so mad. Like, you know what? I'm going to be late to pick them up. I'm going to make them think I left them. Ah, oh, it's got to be the worst. But he was so close to this goal, but ultimately he was so far away. And you see, we can be just like Michael Collins when it comes to our relationship with Jesus. We can look like we're so close to him. We look like we're right there. We're right there next to him. But in reality, we can be so far away. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. If you have a Bible with me, you're welcome to open up with me. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 23. Uh, uh, we're, if, you, if you don't have a Bible, there's a black one on one of the seatbacks in front of you. And hey, if you don't own a Bible at home, please take that black one home as our gift to you today. Uh, but today we're going to be continuing our series called What Would Jesus Undo? And what we're doing in this series, if you're familiar, if you were in a part of church in the 90s, you're probably familiar with the WWJD bracelets, What Would Jesus Do? In this series, we're looking at the inverse question of what would Jesus undo? What actions or attitudes can we see from his time on earth that he absolutely despised seeing in people that claim to be his followers? So last week we talked about political idolatry, and today we're going to be talking about hypocrisy. Ugh, hypocrisy. Like, I think we can have one of two reactions when we hear that. We can either recoil and be like, hmm, hypocrisy? That doesn't make me feel good. I want to talk about things that make me feel good. Hypocrisy doesn't make me feel good. Or 
I think probably the more likely reaction we can have is we find out we're talking about hypocrisy, and we start thinking, okay, start looking around, see who's here today. Like, oh, yeah, they're here today. Good, they need to hear this. Oh, they need to hear this. Maybe if you're watching from home on the live stream, you actually share the stream today because I got some people in my feed who need to hear this, and I don't want to say it to them, right? But we don't like talking about hypocrisy. In fact, I want to play a little game. Do me a favor, raise your hand. We're doing class participation today. Raise your hand if you know a hypocrite. Admit it, if you know one. Oh, most people, most people. In fact, the people that didn't raise their hands, you're probably either too nice or the person you're thinking of is sitting right next to you, right? And you're like, oh, I don't want them to know. Now, don't raise your hands for this. Don't raise your hands. But I wonder if I asked how many of us could think of a time where we've actually shown hypocrisy ourselves. Not in the sense of everyone's a sinner, I know I'm a sinner. Everyone's a hypocrite, I know I'm a hypocrite. But if you could think of an actual scenario or time in your life where you've shown hypocrisy, I w- don't raise your hand, but I wonder how many of us would be able to honestly raise our hands to that. See, hypocrisy is a difficult subject because it's so easy to see in everybody else, but man, it can be so hard to see in ourselves. It can be so hard to see in ourselves. However, this series is meant for us to look inwardly. So I encourage you both this week and in the next uh, coming weeks as we continue this series, that as, as we're talking about things, if the name of someone else pops into your mind, to kind of push it out and to, to treat the series as a way to reflect and to look inwardly in the places where in my walk with Jesus, where am I falling short? Or in my walk with Jesus, where do I need to do some work? So as we get into it today, I think we first need to define what hypocrisy is. Because I think we can get, a little, get it a little mixed up and want to make sure we're all on the same page here. I think, I think we can get the wrong um, understanding of what it means. See, hypocrisy is not the difference between what you do and what you wish you did. In other words, it's not, saying some, it's not claiming something is a sin even though it's something that you struggle with. That's just called sinning. You know, Jesus never says you can never speak against a sin until you've mastered the issue and, then, and only then can you talk about it. But I think if we look at the time when Jesus was on earth and we look at the time where he actually uses the word hypocrites and looked at the people he was talking to and the situations surrounding, I think we can more accurately define hypocrisy as this, that hypocrisy is the difference between what we show and who we are. The difference between what we show and who we are, the difference between who we are on Sunday morning and who we are on Sunday afternoon, the difference between who we are in public and who we are in private. Like this, this definition of hypocrisy comes from Titus 1.16, and it says, they claim to know God, but they deny him by their works. See, it's a show. It's when we act like everything is good on the surface, act like our relationship with Jesus is right where it needs to be on the surface, regardless of what's going on inside. It's when we look like we're so close to Jesus, but in reality, we couldn't be further away. So as we look in the book of Matthew, um, we, we see this entire chapter. We're just going to read a few verses out of it. But this entire chapter, he's, he's kind of denouncing the religious hypocrites, the, the religious leaders in the day who were kind of preaching and teaching in a way that brought the glory and attention to themselves instead of pointing to Jesus. They're teaching a religion of works instead of a religion of repentance and uh, forgiveness and confession in Jesus. And as we, as we read, we see Jesus use the word hypocrite. And the Greek word he's using here is the word hypocrites. Hypocrites, and what it, what it literally means is it means an actor or a stage player or someone who wears a mask. So as we see Jesus use the word hypocrite, it, it's literally like he's saying, you, you actors, you fakers, you pretenders. What people see is not the real you. So let's keep these definitions in mind as we jump into Matthew chapter 23, starting in verse 27. This is Jesus speaking to the religious leaders, and he says this. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You actors, you stage players. You're like whitewashed tombs, which appear, which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of the bones of the dead and every kind of impurity. 
In the same way, on the outside, you seem righteous to people, but inside you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. See, if we're not careful, this is what we can look like as believers today. Look like everything's good on the inside. Make sure we're, make sure we're the way we're supposed to look. Make sure what people see looks like we're in a good relationship with Jesus. But on the, but, but, but on, on the inside, we're the exact opposite. On the inside, we can be so far away from him. It makes me think of this. When I was coming out of high school, early college days, I was a big car guy. I still like cars, but I was a big car guy. I grew up in the metro Detroit area. It's the Motor City. We love our cars up there. And all I wanted to do my whole life was work on cars. And so that's what I originally went to school for. That's what I did out of high school. And I loved my cars. Like I loved buying the car, having it for a time. I'd get bored with it, sell it, buy something else, and just kind of cycled cars in and out for a little while. And I loved working on my own cars as long as I was doing one of three things. I loved working on them as long as I was making them look better, making them louder, or making them faster. If I was doing one of those things, uh, I was in my glory. I loved doing it. But things like maintenance, fixing something that's broken, I don't want to do that. That's not why I got in this game. Like, I just want to, I just want to make my cars fast. I want to make sure if I pull up to a red light and my buddy's next to me, I can beat him off the line. I want to make sure people like my car. Like, that's all I cared about. And so I remember one day I brought my, at the time I had a black Camaro. Loved this Camaro. I brought it into the shop I was working at, put it up in the air to change the oil. Got underneath it, took the drain plug out, the oil starts flowing out. And instead of a brown oil, what came out is a, is a milky white oil. Mm, milky white oil. This is, your, this is your auto mechanics quiz of the day. Who can tell me what milky white oil is a symptom of? Yell it out if you know. Head gasket, yeah, coolant in the, coolant in the, uh, in the oil, which, which probably means either head gasket, maybe intake gasket, translates to expensive. <laughs> not something I wanted to do. Not something that's going to make the car look better, faster, louder. Just not what I wanted to deal with at the time. And I remember thinking, man, like, I put so much money, I felt like I put so much money into this car, and then just to see this white oil come out, just my heart sank. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. This is not what I want to be dealing with right now. But you know what? Change the oil, drive it down the road. Nobody knew. Nobody knew what was going on. If you would have passed me on the road, the car looked nice. You know, it sounded good. It was loud. It was quick. Like, you would, have, you would have no idea that it was dying from the inside out. You see, this is hypocrisy. Look good on the outside, but inside we're dying and in need of repair. If we jump down to verse 33 in this chapter, we see how Jesus kind of responds to these religious leaders. This, this whole chapter, he's saying, you're, you're, you're different on the outside than you are on the inside. You're preaching in a way that people don't see the real you. And then he says in verse 33, he calls them you snakes. You brood of vipers. How can you escape being condemned to hell? That's harsh. That's not what I want to hear from Jesus. And you know what? When he says this, I think... Um, He's not using the word snakes in the way that we would today. In other words, today if you call someone a snake, it probably means that like, they're sneaky or they uh, betrayed you or something along those lines. But he's specifically calling them vipers. And what he's saying is you're, you're venomous. What you're doing is you're not just hurting yourself, but you're infecting the people around you. you know, these were leaders that had people follow them. And so what he's saying is this, this is not just going to end poorly for you, but everyone who you're teaching, everyone who's kind of learning this false religion of works and not faith in me, you're killing them too. This is not just a personal issue. Then he says, how can you escape being condemned to hell? This would have brought up a very specific imagery because what would happen in those days is, far, people, is, is uh, farmers, they would grow their crops, harvest their crops at the end of the season, and then once the growing season was done, they would cut down their crops down to the ground. However, there would still be some like stubble left on the ground, like the bottoms of the crops that they'd have to clear out before the next season. 
So what they would do is they would burn the fields. This would clear everything out, prepare it for the next growing season. But when doing this, when they would burn the fields, the, the flames, the fires would reach these, these dens of vipers, of snakes, and it would drive them out. So it was not an uncommon sight to see a field that was being burned than seeing snakes sort of fleeing from it and ultimately getting overtaken and burned alive. And so what Jesus is saying is saying, this is you. You're not just hurting yourself. You're infecting all the people that you're teaching, all the people that are following you. But ultimately, at the end of the day, you're not going to be able to escape what's coming. You're not going to be able to escape what's coming to you. That, that these, that's, um, if you keep preaching and practicing this false religion of works and not faith in me, you're not going to be able to escape condemnation. And, you know, I think we read this and we, we love seeing this side of Jesus, right? Like, if we're being honest, we all love compassionate Jesus, like the Jesus who loves all the little children of the world. We love, we love Jesus, uh, you know, healing the sick and caring for the needy, the Jesus that makes our heart warm and fuzzy. But if we're being honest, we love, you know, feisty Jesus. We love when Jesus is like getting on the hypocrites and religious leaders. We can get behind him. We're like, this is the Jesus I signed up for. We'll get him. But you know what? I wonder how many times in my life, Jesus, if I was there, would have looked at me and said, you snake. Come on. Like, you know, people follow you. People look up to you and you're leading them towards you, not towards me. You know, if you keep going down this road, how are you going to escape being condemned to hell? What are you thinking? Not as, it's not as fun to read when we read it that way, is it? But you know what? If, if you spend enough time in church, you can learn all the right things to say. Even if you're newer to church, newer to the faith, if you spend enough time in the church, whether here or somewhere else, you can fit in pretty easy. You, know, you can figure out when to stand, when you sit, when you put your hands up, when you close your eyes, dress the part. It's easy to look like we have it all together. But here's what I want us to see from this. It's that following Jesus is about who you are, not what you say. It's about who you are in Christ, not just the things that we do and say. So you can say all the right things, do all the right things, but without a true relationship with Jesus, we can look like we're right there with him. We can look like we got it going on, like our relationship with Jesus is just right where it needs to be. But in reality, we can be so far away from him. You know, a prime example of this reality is, is Judas. Judas Iscariot. Man, if there's someone I don't want to be compared to in the Bible, it's Judas. Like, he's, you know him. He's the, he's, the, he's the lowest of the low. He's not the one I want to be compared to. But man, you could not get closer to Jesus. Like, he was one of the 12. He was there. He saw miracles happen firsthand. He walked with the living, breathing, in flesh, on earth, Jesus. But at the end of the day, he still betrayed him and sold him to his death. You know, in fact, in spite of how close he was to Jesus, Jesus says this about him in Matthew 26. He says, it would have been better if Judas had never been born. That's not what I want Jesus saying about me. See, he obviously took this to extremes, but we can be so similar to him in this area. We can, we can show that we worship Jesus. We can look like we're with him, but our worship can be so focused on ourselves. Not in the sense that we're worshiping ourselves, but in the sense of, I want to make sure I look the part, make sure I look like I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, and that's more important to me than what my relationship with Jesus actually is. If you flip back with me a handful of pages in the book of Matthew, to Matthew chapter 6, um, we see Jesus warn against this very thing. We see him talk about making your worship focused on yourself instead of focused on him and, and what that looks like. He says this, this is Jesus speaking, he says this in chapter 6, verse 1. He says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father in heaven. 
So whenever you give to the poor, don't sound the trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be applauded by people. Truly, I tell you, they have the reward. When you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. Truly, I tell you, they have the reward. But when you pray, go into your private room, shut your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, this, these six verses, to me, bring up a very specific, um, kind of a very specific correlation to our current lives nowadays. But before I get into that, I want to give a little disclaimer, because I think it can be easy to hear what I'm about to say and kind of write this off as, uh, this is kind of old man advice, whatever. And what I mean by that is I want to give you a little peek behind the curtain of our new city staff. And this, this might shed a little bit of light on what I mean. So our staff, there's six of us, and this is kind of our dynamic. There's myself and my wife, Brittany, we're 32 years old, so we're the oldest of the staff. So we're like, we're like geriatric, right? I mean, we're like getting up there. We're 32. And my wife, Brittany, she's, she's cool. Like, she fits in with everybody. I am not. And <laughs> you'll get what I'm saying in a minute. And, um, so so that's, that's the two of us. We're, we're the oldest. And then there's Dylan, who's, I think, 31, like, pretty much the same age. But Dylan's a little different. Dylan's kind of like your cheesy dad, right? Who, like, who, like, who, like, does a, does a real good job at, you know, fitting in with the younger crew. Like, he'll get up here and he'll, like, dab and he'll, like, do TikTok dances and stuff. And, like, he's, you know, he, he fits in well. Like, that's a compliment, right? In fact, in my notes for today, I wrote, um, Dylan acts cool. And Dylan went into my notes and changed it to Dylan is cool. <laughs> I just, I feel like that tells you everything you need to know, right? So I'm just kidding. So, so that, that's the three of us. We're the, we're the three oldest. And then there's a little bit of an age gap. And then there's um, Kevin, John, and Abby, who are the three youngest. And they're all in their uh, mid to, or, or early to mid-20s. So there's a little bit of an age gap. Honestly, in the grand scheme of things, no one's that far away in age. However, that's not always the way it feels. There are many times where there are things that I've heard for the first time in my life, different phrases, different words, that I've heard for the first time in my life in staff meetings by one of these three. And sometimes, I can usually get it from context. I can usually get it from context. But sometimes, I'm a little like, wait, what are we talking about? And I didn't think I'd be here at 32 years old. Like, come on, I'm still cool. But like, so I'll give you a couple examples. Uh, a few months ago, we were sitting in staff meeting, and some sort of food got brought up. I don't remember what we were talking about, but some sort of food. McDonald's, we'll say. And I was sitting there, it was me here, John to my left, Kevin to my right. And the message that they were both trying to get across is, that food tastes good. That food tastes good, all on the same page. But what they said, and this, they said it at the exact same millisecond, at the exact same moment, they said, John to my left goes, mmm, that slaps. And Kevin to my right goes, mmm, that hits different. And they like <laughs> crashed over me like this wave of Gen Z. And I was like, what? Like, what are we talking about? Slaps? Uh. Or like... And this happens all the time. And I'll give you another example. Um, we use a messaging app as a staff called GroupMe, so we can uh, message each other throughout the day. And you can put that first image up. I took a screenshot. The text is small, so I'll read it to you. Um, but I took a screenshot of this interaction. It was probably about a year ago. Um, they were talking about the context here. Hang on, the context here. Don't get ahead of me. The, the context here is they had a young adults event. And um, Dylan, the first line is Dylan asking, how was it? So Dylan, how was it? John says it was good. Not a big turnout, but it was a good crowd. We had fun. The only bad thing was the mosquitoes. Kevin, yeah, that was beat as heck. 
So usually I can get these from context, but I'm looking at it's beats. Like, so, because it's, it's a confusing message. Is he saying, it was a good turnout, we had fun, that's why it was beat. Or the mosquitoes made it beat. So what's the, I don't, where are we coming in here? And so you can put the next message up with my response. That was beat. Is that good or bad? I don't know. I don't know, is that good or bad? You know, which one are we talking about? And then, oh, now everyone's getting to John's responses. And then, and then everyone laughing at me and calling me a boomer. Like, I'm 32 years old. These kids and these youngsters don't know what they're talking about. Uh, but I say, that, all right, anyways, I say that as a joke. Like, I, I, the, the point of me saying that is just, I don't, if you, especially if you're younger, I think it can be easy to hear what I'm about to say and write it off as, eh, that's a little bit of out-of-touch advice, or, eh, you're just a little bit older, it doesn't really apply to me. But I think as we read these verses, Matthew 6, these, this, this first section of verses, the most obvious correlation that comes to mind for me to our current lives nowadays is through social media. And look, I'm not getting up here and being like, you got to delete your Instagrams and your TikToks is the devil and all this stuff. But I think it's so easy when social media, the whole goal is to bring focus to yourself. It can be so easy to bring faith and religion into it and use that as a tool to point back to you instead of to Jesus. And, and, and what do I mean by this? I mean, it's, it's, it, what do we do? It's, you wake, wake up in the morning, wake up in the morning, you've got to update your stories, right? People got to know you're awake. And so we got to make sure people know we start the day off right, right? So got to get the Bible out. We got to make sure it's set on the table. Make sure, like, let, let's be honest, you got to get some natural light in there. If you want the natural light coming in, the, the, the rays, make sure it's open up to a good passage. Like, you don't want people thinking you read, like, numbers for fun. Like, make sure it's, get the Psalms, right? Get the Psalms. Open it up and you don't get your coffee here because you're not a Christian if you don't drink coffee. So coffee's here. And then let's, let's real quick, let's make sure we highlight a few verses because we want people to think we're like in it, in it. And so highlight a few verses. And if we want to take it a step further, put a notebook next to it with a pen, a good pen, like not a Bic, like a good pen, right? And put it next to it. Make sure it's, because people got to know you journal, right? Not just read, but we journal. And then it, it looks all good. And then we got, well, let's get a good filter on it, honestly. Come on, what are we? And so we flip through, get a good filter on it. And meanwhile, we spend more time setting up showing what we're doing than we do actually reading what we posted, right? We can, we can be no different. We can be no different, or we can flip over to Facebook, and we can write this big, long dissertation about the goodness of God, the greatness of God, and how it's a new morning, new mercies, new blessings, praise God, I'm awake, and put all these Bible verses in here, and it sounds like the greatest thing ever, and then what do we do? We, we end it with a picture of ourselves, now, wait a minute, did I, did I use this platform to point people to Jesus, or did I just use Jesus to point people to me? See, we can, we can be no different. We can be no different. And look, before you get all up in arms with me about railing against social media, because I get it, I'm, I'm not the biggest social media person in the world, it's easy for me to rail against it. But before you get up in arms with me about it, you know what the other easiest place to, to, to be in a place of hypocrisy is? It's from right here from right here where I'm standing today. Because you know what? I can get up here and I can, I can talk a good game. I can make it look like my relationship with Jesus is right there, but meanwhile, you have no idea what's going on in my heart. You have no idea what's going on in my home. You have no idea what's going on, but I can make it sound good, right? See, this is, this is part of the problem. There's, there's this idea that if you're, if you're a pastor or you preach, that you have to, people have to think that you have it all together. Man, no one wants to follow a broken pastor. You know, you got to look like you figured it all out, and that way people will follow you. And you, and you know what, this is, this is why it seems like almost on a monthly basis we, we hear about a different uh, leader in the faith or our big name pastor falling to some sort of moral failure because there's, there's this idea 
that we have to put on this mask, that we have to be different when we're in front of people than we are at home. And, you know, that's, the, the, the thing about it is this isn't a big church, small church issue. There's, there's pastors of huge monster churches that have been nothing but faithful throughout their entire careers, and there's pastors of little, tiny, no-name churches that have preached from a place of hypocrisy from day one. This is not a big church, small church thing. This is a heart thing. And, you know, this is, this is one thing I've always appreciated about, about Dylan, and this might embarrass him for me to say, but I'm one of the elders here at New City, and one thing he told us from day one is he said, when we meet, as we meet as a, as a team, I want you to dig into my life. I want you to ask me questions. I want you to ask me probing questions because I, I want to make sure I'm not hiding anything. See, the thing is, the longer we go on with the specific sin issue, the easier it is to become blind to it and not realize how big of an issue it's become. So he said, no, dig into my life. If you see an issue, point it out. I want to make sure, I, there, there's been so many authors and pastors that, that we know that have fallen to this that we'd think, man, that's, I can't believe that, that, that happened to that person. He said, I don't want that to be me. So make sure that it's not. And you know, that's something I've always appreciated because look, not putting up any safeguards because you think you're above a specific sin issue or that, or that wouldn't happen to you is the quickest way to fall to it. Things like, saying things like, that would never happen to me. Ooh. Can you believe what this person did? I would never do that. I hope you're right. I hope you're right. But what are we doing to make sure it, didn't ha- it doesn't happen? What are we doing to make sure? See, see, the acting like we have everything under control is the quickest way to lose control. And this is what I want us to see here. It's that sin grows in the dark. Sin grows in the dark. You got an issue that nobody knows about, that you've never gone to Jesus about? I, I hate to break it to you. It's going to be real tough to get past it. It's going to be real tough. Acting like we have everything under control is the quickest way to lose control. Sin grows in the dark. So, so where do we go from here? I think we can all be on the same page. Hypocrisy is bad. That's not a big revelation to come to. Where do we go from here? How do we, if, you're, if, you're, if you're with me and you're thinking, okay, I, I want to make sure I don't, I, that I'm not acting like this. Where can I, what steps can I take to actually move past this and not be in a place of hypocrisy? I want to give us a few practical steps that we can all take. The first step is to examine Examine yourself. Examine yourself. Look for the places where people don't know the real you. Where do I have issues? Where do I have things that I've been hiding that the people I'm close with, that the people I, don't, the, the people I know don't know about? Examine yourself. Ask God to examine you. Say, I, look, I've probably become blind to some of these issues that I'm facing, but God, I need you to show them to me. So examine. Step two, Confess. Confess. This is why we do confession here at New City every week. And in fact, right at the end of this message, we're going to do it again today. It's because we all need time to go before God and confess. Say, hey, I messed up. I I did it again. I did it again. And I need your help. I need forgiveness and I need help moving past this. Because like I said before, we can't move past these issues on our own. But we need God for them. And then step three, maybe maybe the hardest step, repeat. Do it again. And then do it again. And then again, and again, and again, and never stop. See, this is how we move past hypocrisy. Examine yourself. Ask God to examine you. Look for these places where people don't know the real you. Confess. Ask God for forgiveness. Be specific in your confession of where you've fallen short and where you need help, and then do it again. This is why we do confession weekly at New City, because this is not a one-and-done thing. But we all need time to go before God and confess. Those of us that lead it, too. When we leave confession, the point is not for us just to tell you what to do. It's because we need time to go in front of God as well, regularly, and confess. Your Proverbs 28, 13 says, The one who conceals his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them will find mercy. See, this is how we get past hypocrisy. 
And this is, this is what I want us to see here, that the cure for hypocrisy is honesty. The cure for hypocrisy is honesty. If you want to move past hypocrisy, what's the first step? Be honest. What would Jesus replace hypocrisy with? I think he'd replace it with honesty. See, here's the thing. If we look back at, at Matthew chapter 23, if we look at the first section of verses we read, Jesus doesn't say things like, woe to you who do bad things. He doesn't say, woe to you who say the things that you shouldn't. Woe to you who break my commands. He says, woe to you who do these things, but claim that you don't. See, following Jesus requires confession. It requires honesty. It requires a look inward to see where we're falling short and confess. And, and here's, the, here's the, the main idea, the main point I want us to walk away with today, and that's this, that, that look, it's better to be an honest sinner than a perfect hypocrite. It's better to try and follow Jesus, fall short, get up and try again. It's better to fall short of Jesus every day, get up and say, I, I blew it yesterday, but I'm trying again today. I'm getting back up, God. I'm following you. I'm trying. Fall short. Confess. Look, look at the places you're, you're, you're messing up. Confess, God, I need help. Try, get up, try again. Fall short. Try again. Fall short. It's better to be honest about where we are in our sin than just to look like we have it all together. See, Jesus welcomes the broken. Jesus says, I want you in your brokenness. Not, I, not, not go figure it out on your own and then come to me and then we'll be good. You know, you do you, you work on yourself, you take some me time. Then once you get it all under control, come to me and I'll be here waiting. He says, no, come to me now. Come to me in your brokenness. Come to me in your addiction. Come to me in your pain and your suffering and your hurt. And I'm here waiting. He says in, in, in Mark 2, 17, he says, it's not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous but the sinners. Jesus is saying, if you think you got it all under control without me, that's fine. I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't come for you. I came for those who acknowledge that they need help. I came for those who are saying, I'm broken, I'm in need of a savior. If you think you can save yourself, then what do you need me for? This is the gospel. This is why he died. He never asked you and I to be perfect. He never asked you and I to get it all under control on our own and then come to him. He said, no, come to me now. Come to me in your brokenness. I forgive. I have unconditional forgiveness. I forgive time after time after time again. But you got to take the first step. You got to come to me. See, this is why he died. 1 John 1.8 says, if we, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. See, I don't think many of us would say, I've never sinned. But how often do we, how often is that our message by how we act? How often do we want to make sure we're putting on a face that looks like we got it all together, we're perfect, and we got it all under control on our own? Jesus is saying, you doing this? You're not just, you're not just lying. You're making me a liar. So be honest. Be honest about your sin. Don't act like you have it all together when you don't. Don't spend your life looking like so, you're so close to Jesus, but ultimately being so far away. See, it's better to be an honest sinner than a perfect hypocrite. And what I want to do is I want to give us some time here to be honest. To be honest, I want to give us some time for confession here right in the middle of service where we can go before God and say, look, I messed up. I need your help. I'm a sinner and I'm in need of saving. So I'm going to do is I want to invite the band up. You guys can come on up. And as, as they're setting up, we're going to move into a time of confession here this morning.